Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. For the better part of the last decade, science fiction finally evolved from a niche genre into a mainstream staple. And while many people are familiar with the so-called fathers and grandfathers of genre, the women who have been instrumental in creating and shaping the nerdverse have gone largely unrecognized. Until today. I'm Courtney Enlow, and this is Sci-Fi Fangirl's Forgotten Women of Genre, a podcast where we tell the stories of the women who helped some of the most famous fantasy worlds become a reality. Today's subject is a writer, an academic, an activist, and a pioneer who wrote political ghost stories, queer supernatural romance, and anti-war dramas featuring death as the ultimate choreographer. History may have tried to erase her efforts, but we're here to bring her back under the spotlight where she belongs. This is the story of Vernon Lee. Vernon Lee was born Violet Paget in 1856 at the Chateau Saint Leonard in Boulogne-sur-Mer in the north of France to British expatriates. The family, which included Lee's half-brother Eugene Jacob Lee Hamilton, himself a poet, moved across Europe and mingled in cosmopolitan circles. As a child, Lee counted the painter John Singer Sargent as one of her friends. While the family spent time in France, Germany, and Switzerland, it was Florence, Italy, where they finally settled, and it would be Lee's home for the rest of her life, even as she herself traveled extensively. Violet Paget was considered an immensely bright young woman from an early age, and when she decided to publish her work as a writer for the first time in 1878, when she was only 22 years old, she immediately chose to do so under a masculine pseudonym, Vernon Lee, the surname having been borrowed from her brother. Women writers using male or androgynous pen names was a common practice during the Victorian era, and one that remains dishearteningly common to this day. The Bronte sisters became the Bell brothers. Louisa May Alcott wrote lurid gothic thrillers such as A Long Fatal Love Chase as A.M. Bernard, because such subject matter was deemed unladylike. To this day, Marianne Evans is still best known as George Eliot. Violet wanted to be taken seriously as a writer and an intellectual, and unfortunately that meant assuming the authoritative facade of manhood. In 1880, her first collection of essays, Studies of the 18th Century in Italy, was published. From the earliest point in her career, Lee's work was immensely prolific and highly varied in terms of style, tone, and intent. She wrote novels, essays, plays, travelogues, and intellectual studies, seldom settling on one genre or idea for a long period of time. Her intelligence and skill made her both inspiring and intimidating to her contemporaries. George Bernard Shaw celebrated her as an icon of the old guard of Victorian cosmopolitan intellectualism. Henry James said she was as dangerous and uncanny as she is intelligent, which is saying a great deal. 
She was even referred to as the cleverest woman in Europe. It was this inability to pin her down, to define her as one specific thing that made her so curious to friends and colleagues. She had no qualms about breaking the rules or doing what was considered, quote, unladylike. If she had an opinion, she shared it, often through her wonderful work. As a passionate devotee of the theory of aesthetics, she worked to find a connection between beauty and morality, collaborating with Scottish author and art theorist Clementina Kit Anstrover Thompson. Lee noticed that Kit would react physically in different manners to specific artworks she connected to, a response that Lee believed represented how one could project their own emotions and experiences onto said art. Lee referred to this sensation as empathy, and thus this became the first time the concept was discussed in the English language. In 1897, they published the combined findings of their studies in the article Beauty and Ugliness, which further explained how aesthetics could elicit physiological responses. Nowadays, this idea is widely accepted as the norm, but Lee and Anstrover Thompson's work was considered controversial at the time. Kit Anstrover Thompson was not just Vernon Lee's collaborator. She was her lover. For over 12 years, the two women openly lived together, their relationship a marriage in all but name. Vernon and Kit's relationship and collaborations were severely attacked by many of their supposed friends. In Beauty and Ugliness, Lee describes Kit's appearance in the lushest of terms. Besides her great height and evident great strength, that resemblance to the Venus of Milo was the first thing that everyone remarked about her. Her finely chiseled, rather statuesque features, and a certain, I can only call it, virginal expression made one think rather of a very beautiful and modest boy, like some of the listeners of Plato. While Vernon and Kit's relationship ended in 1898, the two remained close friends until Anstrover Thompson died in 1921. After that, Lee became the executor of her estate. Lee also had long-term and deeply loving relationships with other women. The writer Amy Levy, who was the first Jewish woman to enroll at Cambridge University, wrote passionate love poems to Lee. Although it remains unknown as to whether the pair had a relationship or if Levy's feelings were unrequited. One poem, titled To Vernon Lee, reveals Levy's attraction to her fellow writer. A snowy blackthorn flowered beyond my reach. You broke a branch and gave it to me there. I found for you a scarlet blossom rare. Thereby ran on art and life our speech, and of the gifts the gods had given to each, hope unto you and unto me despair. Much of her short fiction focused on the supernatural, particularly themes of hauntings and possessions. Ghost stories were especially trendy during the tail end of the Victorian era, from Robert Louis Stevenson's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde to Bram Stoker's Dracula to the continuing popularity of the Penny Dreadfuls. One of the most notorious publications during this era was the literary periodical The Yellow Book, a celebrated publication that frequently poked fun at contemporary prudishness. Lee published her first supernatural story in The Yellow Book, 1895's Prince Alberic and the Snake Lady. The story tells the tale of the delicate Prince Alberic, the neglected grandson of the almighty Duke Balthazar, a corrupt leader who dresses in wigs, heavy makeup, and kilts. 
the lonely prince is confined to his rooms, learning about the world and its beauty through the tapestries that line the castle walls. On this tapestry is the story of his ancestor, Alberic the Blonde, and the beautiful Lady Oriana, a woman who ended off in the long, twisting body of a snake. Alberic the Blonde rescues her, but is required to stay faithful to her for a period of 10 years to break her curse, a task he fails at. Oriana is left stuck in her hybrid state and trapped in the embroidery, condemned for no fault but by envious powers to a dreadful fate. And when the Knight of Luna had feasted his eyes upon this marvel, he saw among the grass beneath a flowering almond tree a sepulcher of marble, cunningly carved and gilded, on which was written, Here is imprisoned the fairy Oriana, most miserable of all fairies, condemned for no fault but by envious powers to a dreadful fate. And as he read, the inscription changed, and the sepulchre showed these words, O knight of Luna, valorous Alberic, if thou wouldst show thy gratitude to the hapless mistress of this castle, summon up thy redoubtable courage, and whatsoever creature issue from my marble heart, swear thou to kiss it three times on the mouth, that Oriana may be released." The story of Prince Alberic and the Snake Lady is simultaneously intellectually fascinating and weird as hell. Lee explores her favorite ideas of aesthetics through themes of the supernatural and delves deeply into the discomforting and sensual with her vivid descriptions of the body and nature. Lee's own biographer called the story an example of unwholesome weirdness, loaded with an unhealthy excess of color and jeweled ornament evidence of a diseased sensibility. This may have been a not-so-subtle way of drawing attention to the queer and feminist sensibility of Lee's work. The men of the story are described in androgynous and feminine terms, always dressed in makeup or called delicate, and the beauty of their natural surroundings are frequently compared to the female form or things that mimic it. The obviously phallic imagery of a woman trapped in a hybrid snake body and reduced to an artistic fetish in an unmoving tapestry symbolizes the duality of the female struggle in Victorian times. Women are both subjugated as less than human and assumed to be dangerous creatures in waiting. Fairy tales have always been a way for writers to explore societal fears and establish or subvert its morality. But Lee took it a step further. Stories like Prince Alberic are as philosophically charged and challenging as they are sensually appealing and entertaining. Lee continued to write prolifically well into the beginnings of the 20th century. She also continued to attract considerable acclaim for her stories, novels, studies, and travelogues. The English writer and translator Montague Summers called her the greatest of modern exponents of the supernatural in fiction. However, as World War I began and ravaged its way across Europe, Lee's stance as an anti-war writer made her increasingly unpopular. Having settled in Italy after her split with Kit, Lee had returned to England for a break when war was declared, leaving her unable to return to the country she had made her home. During this time, public displays of anti-war sentiment were interpreted as unpatriotic, and failure to support the Allied cause with enthusiasm led to Lee being derided by friends and foes alike. One of her closest confidants, the French writer Augustine Bouteau, 
sneered at how she had renounced the honor of being English to make you raise your thin, pretentious voice in support of the enemy of your country. Despite her repeated insistence that she loved the allied countries she had made her home over the years, and that her opposition to war was merely an extension of her long-established pacifist views, Lee still faced criticism from her contemporaries, many of whom were actively involved with the war effort. Even Kit Anstruver Thompson had volunteered offering her services to Belgium's relief work. Eager to offer an explanation for her views and find an artistic outlet for her frustrations, Lee penned The Ballet of Nations in 1915 and Satan the Waster, a philosophic war trilogy in 1920. These deeply strange allegorical works represent some of Lee's most daring and experimental work, blending philosophy, the supernatural, and her fiercely left-wing politics to depict the ceaseless aggression of war. Dear creatures, how true it is that great artistic exhibitions invariably bring home to the nations that there is, after all, a power transcending their ephemeral existence. Indeed, it is one reason why I prefer the ballet of the nations to any of the other mystery plays like Earthquake and Pestilence, which death puts on our stage from time to time. In the ballet of the nations, death himself acts as the choreographer to a dance between the countries, although he ultimately has very little to do for their initially peaceful union to end in a massacre from which there are no winners. Despite the bleak tone of the piece, Lee does end it on a hopeful note, having Satan of all characters tell death that he is a preposterous, indecent anachronism who will become obsolete in a future that is peaceful, fraternal, full of thought for the future. He even predicts this will have been the last of our ballet of the nations. Reviewers, however, were not kind, and readers were still not ready to forgive what they saw as Lee's unpatriotic cowardice. Lee continued publishing after the First World War, but her output slowed down considerably. Her work had fallen out of favor. She eventually returned to Florence and remained there until she died in 1935 at the age of 79. For many decades after her death, her work was ignored or overlooked by scholars, it wasn't until the late 1980s that scholars rediscovered her and firmly reestablished her rightful status as a pioneer. In a letter she wrote to her friend Maurice Baring in 1906, Vernon Lee lamented, I can never imagine what I wrote being read, still less read by anyone in particular. It is sad that she ended up being right on this, for her work disappeared from the public consciousness for many years after she died. For those who are willing to look for it, there is much to be appreciated about Lee's stories, from her unabashed feminism and queerness, to her refusal to censor her controversial political stances, even as they led to her being shunned by friends and colleagues far and wide. She put it best herself, and we can't help but admire her for it. While all this has been going on, never for a second have I repented or distrusted my own attitude. Never for a second wished my attitude might be different. My position about the war seems as entirely natural and inevitable, given me, as I recognize and feel theirs to be given them. Forgotten Women of Genre is a production of Sci-Fi Fangirls. Today's episode was written by Kaylee Donaldson and read by Courtney Enlow. You can find the script of this episode 
and so much more at sci-fi fangirls.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at sci-fi fangirls.